I am going to do my best to piece some things together this morning. If you know me, you know I love to laugh. You know I love humor. You know I, I'm, I'm lighthearted uh, most of the time. Um, my, it's, it's my personality. It's kind of how I see the world. I, I've, I've all my whole life I've been very optimistic, and yet coming into this teaching and running headlong into a verse that deals with misery and mourning, and and it's a little depressing. And I I, I hit it and thought, literally several weeks ago, thought, boy, I'm not going to teach that on a Sunday morning. And God said, well, you just shouldn't have said that. <laughs> So we're going to deal with some things, and, and again, work through three verses in a passage, three or four verses today. Um, but before we even get there, i got to give you the little pieces that landed in my lap over yesterday and today. And I, I think there's application in all of this. You see, Yaakov, James, Jacob, Yaakovus, his name, Jacob, in the scriptures, we translate James. He does an interesting thing in his letter. He begins at the very beginning of the letter telling the people, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. So he encourages them in their trials and in their hardships. But then long about chapter 4, all of a sudden, he starts to hammer them. And it's odd to me because you wouldn't think that's how you build up a church that's already in persecution. These people are already having a hard time and now you're going to go after them? How does that work? Why does he do that? Well, that's what we're going to work through and and think through this morning. And that's what I think we need to deal with because we are a church that is increasingly persecuted. Now, I used to say that years ago. And oftentimes, and it wasn't intentional, it wasn't trying to, as it were, gen up a sermon or something. But pastors have for a long time found emotional things to add into teaching to to get people to really respond and feel it. And so the idea that the church is persecuted in this world, well, that's a common uh, topic. That comes up from time to time. And oftentimes when I would share things about the church being persecuted in the past, it would have to do with what we see could be coming. What could happen. And so count it all joy if you encounter various trials in your life, whatever's going on. Well, it's one thing for you to feel persecuted as an independent, individual Christian. It's another thing to see it coming down on the church. This is something in America we haven't really experienced a whole lot. Some, you know, you can't say Merry Christmas, but whatever, you know, we say Merry Christmas anyway. But all those little things like that that were out there could be persecution for the church. Not that big a deal. But things are changing. I I ran across uh, three different news articles, unrelated. One was from the highly erudite, educated intellectuals over at GQ. (laughs) They were rating books and came up with a list of 21 books that you really don't need to read. And you go down the list and you get about halfway through and you hit the Bible. And what they had to say was the following, quote, The Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but in actuality have not read it. Which right there is an absolutely arrogant statement to make. We have read it, by the way, here at the bridge. We've been going verse by verse through it for 15 years nearly. We have seen what there is in this amazing, remarkable, divine, Holy Spirit-inspired book. But they go on to say, there are those who have read it who know there are some good parts, but overall, it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. Let me just tell you, man did not produce it. 
So you're right. It can't be the finest thing man has ever produced. It's divinely produced and goes beyond anything any man has ever written. But they say it is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned. GQ magazine. Great. I hear Peter saying in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more sure to which we would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So I read that little GQ thing and I wasn't surprised and it offended me a little bit because I thought, come on you guys, you don't even know what you're talking about. Because the truth is the truth and this word is truth. But then I ran across another article called How Long... How long will I be allowed to remain a Christian? That was the deeply dismaying question posed to me by a friend with four young children as we discussed the plight of the Christian faith in America and around the world. This is written by Douglas McKinnon, April 21st, 2018. He said, with each passing month, that shocking question becomes more relevant and even more disturbing. To say that Christians and Christianity are under a withering and brutal attack in certain areas of the world would be an understatement. In various parts of the Middle East, there is a genocidal cleansing of Christians being carried out. Women, men, and their young children are being slaughtered because of their faith. And world leaders and most of the media turn their backs in bored indifference, and I wonder if the church does too here in America. Do we mourn the loss of Christian brothers and sisters who are being persecuted around the world? He goes on and says here in the United States, Christians and Christianity are mocked, belittled, smeared, and attacked by some on a daily basis. This is a bigoted practice that is not only increasingly exponential, but is being encouraged and sanctioned by a number on the left. Too many of those who worship the altar of political correctness have deemed that Christianity should no longer be respected. Rather, they assail it on a regular basis in a coordinated campaign to weaken the faith and its base. The prevailing view in much of the media is that Christianity is aligned with Republicans, conservatives, or the views of President Trump, and therefore must be diminished and made suspect. The New Yorker just described the opening of a few Chick-fil-A restaurants in New York City as pervasive Christian traditionalism and a creepy infiltration of New York City. Christianity is an infiltration, therefore, to some, again, on the left. In college, they now teach about the evils of Christian privilege. On Broadway and in theaters around the world, mocking Christians has become a massively profitable money-making venture. In name, on the cross, in art, Jesus Christ is desecrated in the most twisted and obscene of ways. In movies, on television, online, Christians are always portrayed as the most dishonest, prejudiced, and insulting people. Across the country, Christian colleges are under constant assault from, quote, social justice warriors seeking to strip their accreditation and put them out of business. Christian groups on campus are at times being persecuted, their offices and handouts vandalized, we saw this recently at Oak Harbor High School, with members even being physically assaulted. In a nation that is still majority Christian, those who follow the faith have been litigated or browbeaten into being fearful to utter the words Merry Christmas or to display a nativity scene celebrating the one and only reason there is a Christmas day. And he goes on and talks about some other things. You know the old story of the high school football coach fired for taking a knee, teacher fired for giving a 
the Bible to a student who requested it. A Marine who's cursed at and then court-martialed for not removing a Bible verse from her computer. And it goes on. And some of these things you've read and, and I'm sure thought about and thought, oh, that's, that's tragic. We hate to see that going on. But it's worse. This was just handed to me after second service. This is where my sorrow comes from. The headline is, California Governor Jerry Brown to ban sales of the Bible. Now, listen to this. And, and look it up. I mean, let, let's double check. Let's make sure there's not you know, someone trying to put out the, uh, the old false news thing. But it's Assembly Bill 2943. I was just sitting here reading it to make sure of my facts. Assembly Bill 2943. It's already gone to the, uh, to the House. It's been approved. It's going over to the Senate. This will threaten the freedom of religion and First Amendment rights of Christians in California. This is my state where I grew up. Using the state's consumer fraud statute, it will restrict religious freedom and free speech. The bill seeks to ban sales of the Bible because it includes verses that fall outside what Governor Jerry Brown considers acceptable teaching on sexuality issues. The controversial bill will also ban any form of speech or written material that promotes traditional Christian views on marriage or sexuality. It has already made its way through the California State Assembly after it was approved on the floor Thursday. The bill now goes to the State Senate for a vote. Randy Thomason with SaveCalifornia.com says the bill is extremely broad and will affect just about anything helping people seek religious guidance. He said this is a very expansive, tyrannical, and absolutely squashing free speech bill, uh, religious freedom, and the basic choice of people. It's anti-freedom. It's anti-American. Essentially, churches and Christian schools that share biblical teaching on the subject will now be open to lawsuits. And don't you think that they, that they won't come? CBN News asked Thomason if this bill will lead to a ban on Bibles or even books from other faiths. Well, you could see this law going into effect. A church bookstore selling the Bible, of course, will be selling a book about marriage or, uh, of course, selling a book about marriage or sexual purity. You could see a, a member of the public or even a member of the state government coming and saying, hey, that's illegal. If this is signed into law, it will affect Christian counselors, bookstores, church conferences, churches themselves, as well as medical and health professionals. The bill also seeks to ban biblical-based counseling for those who seek Christian guidance, as the traditional Christian counseling does not fit, again, into Governor Jerry Brown's contemporary scientific view of the world. The article makes me sick. And I read that, and I think, we're uh, really fast coming to the end of the end. And in these last days, and the reason why I share all this is not to upset people, although I myself am upset by this. The reason I share this is because what we're going to talk about this morning is is suddenly making sense to me like it, it didn't on Thursday. And the fact is, brothers and sisters, we are going to need each other in these last days. We are going to need the church. We are going to need to rely on each other, to trust each other, to stop bickering, to stop contentions, to stop arguments, to stop disagreements, and be on the same page together. Because it's going to get tougher and tougher. I don't know when Jesus is going to come. I'm hoping before the end of the teaching this morning. And I think that every single day we sing, Come Lord Jesus comes, and my heart swells with the notion that He will come, and He will come quickly. I don't know when that's going to be, but my sense is that up until He comes, it's not going to get easier for us. Scripture tells us very plainly it's going to get more difficult. We're going to need each other. 
We're going to need to have a place we can go for refuge. And people that we know we can trust. Will we go back to having one person paint a line this way and another person paint a line this way to show a fish so that we recognize we're both Christians and we can speak freely together? I don't know. Will we get to the kind of persecution they felt in the first century? I don't know. But I can tell you this, the first century church under intense outside persecution had internal squabbles just like the church today. And it's kind of shocking to recognize that on the one hand there's persecution without, and on the other hand there's pugnaciousness within. And that we don't need. So with all that in mind, wow, I haven't even started. (laughs) Chapter 4, verse 8 tells us, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. And Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves before You this morning. We open Your Word and we just plead with You. Teach us, Holy Spirit. Teach us to mourn. And teach us why we should and how this fits with the whole idea of joy in the Scriptures. Teach us, Lord Jesus, we pray. In your name, amen. Amen. Now I've told you that this letter was written, the biblical name, the actual biblical name is Yaakov, not James. But I begin to wonder after reading verse 9 of the text this morning, if perhaps we missed the whole thing, that we were wrong in the first place, that his name is not Yaakov, it's actually Eeyore. (laughs) Because he tells them to mourn. And be miserable and turn laughter into sorrow and joy into gloom. How how does that make sense? Eeyore, the the donkey you know with the tacked on tail, who lives in the southeast corner of the hundred acre wood in an area that is labeled on a little map in A.A. Milne's book, Eeyore's gloomy place, rather boggy and sad. And Eeyore said, good morning, Pooh, if it is a good morning, which I doubt. He said, into the road, nothing to do, and no hope of things getting better. And he said, when someone asks you, how do you do, just say you didn't. (laughs) Pop culture is filled with this stuff. You know, characters that are on the negative side, the downside, the depressed. We see them all the time. We, We can chuckle at them. You know, we also can quietly relate when we're having a bad season or a bad day. We can say, yeah, I feel like an Eeyore today or a Grumpy or a Grinch <laughs> or Oscar the Grouch or even good old Charlie Brown who is eternally hopeful and yet very pessimistic all at the same time who, who said, sometimes I lie awake at night and I ask, where have I gone wrong? And then a voice says to me, this is going to take more than one night. <laughs> And we can laugh at these things and we see these things. Again, the expression of pessimism and negativity and and even mourning in our culture. Perhaps one of the more surprising that I ran across was Arthur Conan Doyle's creation of Sherlock Holmes. The brilliant detective of, of fictional literature who said, Is not all life pathetic and futile? We reach, we grasp, and what is left in our hands at the end? A shadow. Or worse than a shadow. Misery. You know, there are people who live that way. 
I'm reaching, I'm grasping, and, and all, I, all I find is sorrow and shadow and darkness. Perhaps you came this morning going, this is why I love coming to church. It's the one place I can hear joy. And Pastor Rick starts going off on mourning and misery. It's not what I came for. It's not what I want. Hey, listen, what you want may not be what matters this morning. Sometimes what we want is not what we need. And I think Yaakov had a sense of that when he was writing this letter. Oh, the people needed encouragement in the face of persecution. And they they needed uh, strength in the face of false teaching. But you come along to chapter 4, which is called the heart of the letter, and what they need most is a sound whipping. And he goes after them. The dispersed Christians outside of Jerusalem. And these are Christians to whom he is referring. And so he wrote in verse 9, Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Christians, think Joel Osteen's ever read that verse. (laughs) I'd like to hear him preach a sermon on it. I really would. Honestly though, what I'm saying is this. It is, it is hard to imagine a verse like James 4.9 in the Scriptures that talk about joy. That's the heart of the Bible. It's the heart of Christian faith. It's, it is joy, true, deep, life, joy, and, and hope, and all things good out ahead of us. How can you call us to be miserable? The Bible says, Proverbs 17.22, A joyful heart is good medicine. But a broken spirit dries up the bones. Nehemiah 8.10 Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Jesus said, John 15.11 These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. And then He turned around and He prayed in this prayer, John 17, verse 3, These things I speak in the world so that they may have My joy full in themselves. How do you reconcile that with being miserable? Or Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I'll say, So we're supposed to be always joyful, always rejoicing, and then Yaakov has the audacity to say, Be miserable. How does that work? What is his problem? And why is he calling for such misery? I have one sense about it. Psalm 32.11 says this. Listen closely. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. You hear that? That's the issue. That is, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, You righteous ones. Shout for joy, you upright in heart. Well, what about the unrighteous ones? What about when I'm not walking upright, but downward in heart? You see, the gladness and the joy of the the Scriptures, the rejoicing, these are emotions of real assurance that I can be joyful in the worst of situations because guess what? I know where I'm going. And I know Jesus is coming. And I know the hope for the future is real and actual, grounded in truth, reviving to the Spirit. I know this. I would call that the elation of salvation. I just know I'm saved, man. 
So bring on the worst that the world has to offer. Try to ban our Bible sales and I'll give a big fat whatever and we'll buy out all the Christian booksellers and we'll just start passing out Bibles free. Because I know where we're going. It's the elation of salvation. It gives us hope in the midst of mourning and darkness and misery and all that's upsetting in this world that is downward rather than upward. But listen. All those who are joyfully upright in heart, that is, you have been saved by the blood of Jesus, you're walking with Jesus and you have the joy of that faith, the elation of salvation, all of those were at first mournfully downcast in spirit. You had to be to get to the place of realizing you needed to be saved. You had to have a heart broken before you could have a heart healed. You go down before you go up. You recognize your plight in the face of what God is offering. And there is sorrow there. And yes, there is mourning and there is misery. But I want you to think this through with me. Yaakov is now speaking to saved people in the church and telling them once again, be miserable. Verse 8, he says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Oh, a marvelous verse. It is both a prescription and a promise. The prescription, draw near to God. The promise, and He will draw near to you. And it's marvelously placed here in, again, the heart of the letter. In the midst of some of the most strongly worded admonitions in all the New Testament, much less in the letter of Yaakov. And what he is admonishing them about, what he's going after them about is what's happening in the early church. I I said on Wednesday night, people say, oh, if we could just be like the first century church. No. No, 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 no. Let's be like Jesus. But the first century church had as many problems as the 20th, 21st century church. I mean, they were people. You put people together in any organization, even in the church, and you're going to have issues that crop up. And there was this miserable infighting that was going on among Christians dispersed outside of Jerusalem to whom James is writing, Yaakov. And we know this because read the letter, man. You know, he calls them in this passage in chapter 4, adulteresses. He calls them sinners. And he calls them double-minded. And it's because they're in contention and in conflict and there's bitterness and it's all going on at the same time and the prescription for it is draw near to God. Because you know what? You can't argue with someone while you're worshiping. You can't be in a fight and be contentious while you're praising the Lord. You draw near to God and that is the prescription for marital problems. It is the prescription for family conflict. It is the prescription for individual life, for churches that are struggling in work, at home. The prescription for conflict, draw near to God. Well, what if the other person... Don't worry about the other person. You draw near to God. You can't always solve it. You know, like Paul said, as much as it is as it has to do, seek to live at peace with all men. Not all people are going to live peacefully in return. But draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Conflict is the context here. Conflict is what is happening here. And he says, as a remedy for this conflict, draw near 
to God. And there's another word for drawing near that also has to do with mourning and misery and gloom. And that word is repent. Repent. Draw near to God. Turn to God. Repent. Don't think of it as a big religious word. Repent. Hey, turn around to your Father. Turn to God who longs for you. Draw near to your Creator. Repent. And that is what Yaakov is talking about here. Repentance. A sorrow that literally accompanies repentance. A deeply emotional misery that is moved by the recognition of our sin. Have you ever felt that? You ever paused in your life and realized what a stinking sinner you were to the point that it broke your heart? To the point that you felt a weight of sorrow about it? But then marvelously, wonderfully, in that moment of sorrow, you turned to God, you drew near to God. God, save me, a sinner. And in that moment, you realize... He has just drawn near to you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Now again, I want to piece this together as we go, but you need to understand this up front about repentance. That sorrowful repentance is not a requirement of God to prove your sincerity. People have misunderstood that. Oh, okay, so I've got to to be all wiped out for God to accept i got to prove to him that I really do feel bad about my sin. That's not the point of repentance. God's not into mind games. You know, he, he's not into emotional blackmail. He's not sitting there going, well, if you really want salvation, show me. Show me. When you realize what a loser you are, and I see how bad you feel, maybe then... No, that's not Jesus. So what's this sorrow part of repentance? The truth is, God is not passive-aggressive. He is truth. He is genuine. And in this genuineness, He knows that godly sorrow purifies me. That true repentance that I feel in my heart, it changes me. It impacts my position before Him. It's not doing anything to Him. He doesn't want you to be sorrowful, except that He knows that sorrow will wash your heart up. Clean you up. Help you stand before Him fresh. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. And then he goes on to explain. You were made sorrowful according to God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to God produces repentance without regret. You know what that means? It means you're never sorry for being sorry. Repentance without regret. I I look back on repenting and coming to the Lord for the first time and I am so glad that I was mournful at the time. I am so thankful for that sorrow that brought me to my knees and brought me to the Lord. It's godly sorrow. Produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But, Paul writes, the sorrow of the world produces death. Well, how does that work? Sorrow of the world just makes you beat yourself up. You feel guilty. You wallow in self-pity. You feel horrible. And then you try to alleviate the guilt by just ignoring it until the conscience gets seared and the heart dies. And that's what the sorrow of the world does. The sorrow of the world is Judas hanging himself. The sorrow that's godly sorrow is Peter repenting. And we're called to this godly sorrow. 
Now, when Paul wrote that about godly sorrow to the church at Corinth, note, he was writing to Christians. He was not writing to people who had never accepted Jesus as Lord. Same with Yaakov right here. He is not writing to the non-believer. He is writing to the Christian. Listen, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. How do I know that he is talking specifically to Christians? Because non-believers can't be double-minded. The non-believer is single-minded. They're just a non-believer. They're just living their life. They, they, the believer is the only one who can be one foot in with Jesus and one foot out. Double-minded. Non-believer doesn't care. And no offense, if, you're, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm not saying, oh, you horrible person. I'm just saying you're not both and. You're not either or. You're not you know, one foot in either way. You're not following Jesus and not following. You're just not following Jesus. But when you choose to follow Jesus, there is then the potential of being double-minded. Well, I follow Jesus every Sunday. And occasionally on Wednesdays when I'm feeling a little sad about my faith. But then Monday morning, I'm following the world. Double-minded. Yaakov goes after them here. I mean, think about how would you feel if you walked in on a Sunday morning and I said, I just have three words for you all this morning and then we're done. You adulteresses, you sinners, you double-minded. Have a nice day. (laughs) But that's what he's doing. He is lobbing these these explosive footballs here at the Christians of this community who are being double-minded, who are sinning, who are being spiritually, at least, adulterers. The Holy Spirit calls on us not to be double-minded. See, the single-minded person who doesn't believe in Jesus is just all in with the world. Christian who's double-minded is half in with Jesus, half in with the world. But the Holy Spirit says, I want you all in. I want you 100% walking with the Lord, living for Him. Understand again, though, this teaching goes out to all followers of Jesus. This is a letter to Christians, and the recipients of this particular letter were contentious. They had traded their joy for bitter backbiting and infighting and quarreling. And as I said earlier, they were persecuted without and pugnacious within. This letter was written in the mid-40s. I mean, this is early stuff. Already happening among Christians. Fifteen times in the letter, Yaakov calls them brethren, beloved brethren. So make no mistake how he felt about these people. He loved them very, very much. But at the same time, he turns around and says, adulterous, double-minded, sinners, this is a broadcast for mournful repentance among Christians who are aware of their sinful contentions with each other. You see, repentance is not just something you do to become a Christian. It is a lifestyle of the Christian. It's how we live. As I spend every day drawing near to God that He might draw near to me, turning back to the Lord when I realize I have turned away, seeking single-heartedness before Him when I find I'm being double-minded, I repent and I repent and I repent. Here's the wonder and the glory of it. I'm not repenting every time to be saved again. Because I'm saved. By the grace of God in Jesus Christ, I have a secure salvation. But I'm repenting because I want to be as close to Him as possible. And because I find that the sorrows and griefs that I bring on myself in my sin in the world cause me to long more for Him. I want to be with Him, so I turn to Him. 
So I repent again and again in my life that I might not just have one foot in the family of God and one foot out, but I might learn to be wholeheartedly in with God's people. We keep drawing near to God and repenting. And this repentance now is evidenced in three ways that he describes before us. If you continue in verse 8 again, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Note that. Hands and hearts. And that's the first thing to note. I'll just give you three quick things here. Hands and hearts is the first one. But he doesn't say hands and heart. He doesn't say, cleanse your hands and purify your heart. He says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. How many of us have more than one heart? Anyone here have two hearts going on? Because that would be freaky. (laughs) Hands and hearts means he's talking to the whole body who all together have hands and hearts. So again, he's referring to the church, the body of Christ, which is a community right now that he's writing to that has dirty hands and tainted hearts. Now, stay with me on this. We are so trained, and I talked about this Wednesday night, we are so trained to be independent followers of Jesus Christ. I have my faith walk. And I, as an individual, follow Jesus. And whether or not y'all are following Jesus is really beside the point. I'm with Him. We need each other. And the Bible refers to so many things we cannot do independently as followers of Jesus Christ. We need the body because we are part of the body. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. You can't bear one another's burdens by yourself. You have to be with one another. Romans 12.15 Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Which means, if someone in my fellowship is weeping, I am sorrowful with them. I weep too. One of the things I love about being on the prayer chain, and you can get on that, just talk to less. So as, as prayer needs go out, you just, you're made aware of things happening throughout the church, and you can stop right then and pray and lift people up and start to recognize who people are. Because we are one body. If one member suffers, 1 Corinthians 12.26, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Hands and hearts. All together. And they are at issue as members of the body of Christ. In other words, you matter to me because you matter to Him. Sometimes you you can think that I'm going to make an appointment to go talk to Pastor Rick because i got something going on in my life. And that's great, and I encourage that, and I love to meet with people and sit down and pray together. But you can think that, well, it's his job. That's what we pay him for. No. The same is true for all of us, that we meet with, we pray with, we walk with each other, not because we get something out of it, but because God loves this people. He wants us together. And it is incumbent upon the body of Christ to seek clean hands and pure hearts together. In other words, if there is sin going on in this body and I'm aware of it, i got to address it. And I hope that doesn't encourage you to bury sin even deeper. Or hide it even more. I've been asked the question, you know, there are things that will go on every now and then in the body. Something will surface. And when I hear about it, Something going on, I have to address it and hopefully address it with someone who really wants to repent and really wants to turn from it, whatever it might be. 
But sometimes I have to address it with people who don't want to change the lifestyle. And that's difficult. So why do you address it, Rick? Because I have to. Because if someone in this body has dirty hands, guess what? So do I. You ever thought about it that way? If a brother or sister is struggling with sin, and they're part of the body and you're part of the body, that part of the body of which you are a part is now infected. And to turn back on it and not deal with it and not lovingly try to seek restoration and encouragement in that, that that's a problem that we have done in the church or, or propagated in the church for years. I don't want to deal with everybody else's stuff. i got enough on my own. But everybody else's stuff is my stuff. If we're all the same body, right? Hearts and hands together. Now, now this picture of hands and hearts is a very Hebrew picture. What Yaakov is drawing off of is the picture of priests in the temple who had to cleanse hands, at least hands and feet. They had the big bronze laver right in front of the temple. They go into the temple and before they could go in and do their service, they had to wash. Ceremonial washings all day long. Clean hands, clean feet. But here he says, interestingly he says, hands and hearts, not hands and feet. Why? What he's recognizing is that On the one hand, hands speak of our external deeds. Hearts speaks of our internal disposition. Hands need washing. Hearts need purifying. And that's difficult because I can wash my hands. I can try to change my behavior. I can try and clean up my act. But only the Spirit of God can purify my heart. I can't do that. It's out of my hands, so to speak. Ezekiel 36.26, Moreover, God says, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. That's what happens when you repent, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, when you're born again. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And this whole idea of hands and hearts is, is so, so Yaakovian. Remember, this is, the, this is the Jacob who says, faith without works is dead. And so the truth is, the pure heart becomes obvious in the clean hands. If the heart is pure, the hands are going to be clean. Our dispositions spiritually, internally, are going to come out in our deeds as the people of God. Hearts. And hands, hands and hearts. And the Hebrew Scriptures tell us in Psalm 24, verse 3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Clean hands and pure hearts are needed. Read on, verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And so in addition to clean hands and pure hearts, we need, number two, a little more misery and mourning. And this is hard. Because again, as a happy guy, it's not what I want to hear. As a positive person, I kind of wonder about this. More misery and mourning. But you know what? The more I consider this verse, the more I love it. Because what Yaakov is doing here is in the heart of the letter, going straight for the heart of the people. 
He's getting right into the guts. I enjoy jokes and humor and laughter and puns. You all know as much as anybody. But it's the frothy stuff on the top of the latte. It is not down inside. It's the fluff. And in fact, biblically speaking, laughter just skims the surface. It tends to be an expression of senselessness and silliness. It's kind of frivolous laughter. You ever been in a restaurant? You've heard that. You know, someone a few tables over, <laughs> and you're like, really? Really? How many has he had? You know, I mean... Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 2 in the Bible says, I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. And then he says in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 6, I love the description, for as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. That's the guy two tables over. <laughs> the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot. I mean, I, I've got to get this out of my head because I know what's going to happen. I'm going to be sitting in a restaurant, some guy's going to make some silly laughter, and I'm going to go, crackling thorn bush under a pot. <laughs> or snorting, whatever works for you, really. And this too is futility, the Bible says. Well, wait a minute, though, I'm a laughter guy. Hey, The Bible's not saying laughter is wrong, but it is often the mark of a fool when there's no real joy underneath. It's just laughter. Laughter that sits on the surface. Jesus even Himself said, Luke 6.25, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Why would he say that? Because Jesus is far more about our enduring joy than explosive bouts of laughter. Again, it's okay to laugh. It's okay to enjoy yourself. But the real question is, why? Is it frivolity that has nothing underneath it? Which is why he's talking about mourning. Because people don't generally go all in just to mourn. Unless there's something deep and internal that's going on. By the way, I'll mention this, about 15-20 years ago a thing began to happen in some circles in the church, holy laughter. Holy laughter isn't a thing, my friends. The Bible does not teach in any place this idea of uncontrollable laughter as, as a work of the Holy Spirit. No, laughter is frivolity and not a work of the Spirit. Joy is a work of the Spirit. And peace, contentment, you know, these things are God. What about mourning? What about mourning? Listen to it again. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And again, he's coming at these people with a profound biblical truth that your contentions are messing everything up. That you are missing the true joy because you're so contentious with one another and you ought to be mourning about this. You ought to be weeping over your sin. You ought to be miserable that your laughter ought to be mourning your joy gloom because of what's going on in and among you. And boy, this is heavy. And Yaakov is speaking something, watch this, that is absolutely consistent with a Hebrew eschatological worldview. 
Eschatological end times. Listen to this. I'm just going to read it to you quickly this morning. This is out of the book of Joel. Chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. For strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Yet even now declares the Lord. Listen. Return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. It is a parallel verse to exactly what Yaakov has just said. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. You need to be mourning and weeping a little more though. Turning your laughter into gloom. Why? He says, continuing on, Joel 2.13, Rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, relenting of evil. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and let the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep before the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord God. And I wonder, do we ever have that level of visceral repentance? Where we are weeping, not just over the little petty things in which I sinned this last week, but weeping over the sin of the church. Weeping over issues that may be present in this body. Mourning over not loving each other the way Christ loved us. Joel is an end times prophet. Seven or eight hundred years before Jesus, Joel was writing. And his prophecy was, mourn now or you're going to mourn then. Do we, the church, see our sin and rend our hearts in such a way, mourning for the grace of Christ the Messiah? Or or do we have a casual view of sin among us? The not really that big a deal view. Would we dare denigrate the blood of Jesus Christ with unemotional, half-hearted views of His sacrifice? Or would we turn and repent with sorrow and mourning of heart? Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. You've heard me quote this verse many times. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication that is prayer so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn this is talking about the second coming of Jesus and the people of Israel in that moment in full recognition of who he is mourning over the crucified returning Jesus And it says, in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadramon in the plain of Megiddo. Misery and mourning and weeping and gloom, and these are all indications, they are all parts of or associated with end times prophecies. Are we in the end times? I believe we are. 
And I think it's time for the church to begin to mourn at least more often than we have in the past. Over the present state of the world, over loved ones who right now are lost, and over the condition of the church itself in the world. Not just the persecution from outside, but again, the pugnaciousness within. Yaakov said in chapter 5, the end of verse 3, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. He says in verse 7, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. He says in verse 8, the coming of the Lord is near. He says in verse 9, the judge is standing right at the door. What's the point? My friends, while Joel and Zechariah and many of the other Hebrew prophets wrote about mourning in the end times, so did Yaakov. As he refers to and talks to the church, he too is dealing with mourning in the last days. And he is so passionate for the church because he believed that the day was imminent. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. Yeah, how much more imminent right now than it was then? You see, Yaakov and Peter and Paul and all of the writers in the New Testament, they understood something. They understood that they had entered into the last days. 2,000 years? The last days? Yeah, look at it in the big picture. From creation to Abraham, 2,000 years. From Abraham to Christ, 2,000 years. From Christ to now, 2,000 years. That means we're in the final third of the last days. And these are the days to mourn. Why such a call for misery? That we would mourn as a body our adulterous, sinful, double-minded deeds and dispositions. That we would actually, for a change, have some heartache over what's happening in the church today. And with that, that we would love each other enough to hurt when we see the stuff going on. And to say, Lord, forgive us. Repentance is evident in clean hands and pure hearts. It is evident in misery and in mourning. And finally, it is evident in humility and honor. Verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. This was a motto in the first century church. We see it scattered throughout the New Testament. We believe it was shared many times in assemblies. Often was spoken as a part of the act of repentance. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. And we realize here that Yaakov bases more of this letter of his teachings on Jesus than on anything else. For it was Jesus who said in Matthew 23.12, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Now I wonder truly if Yaakov ever heard his half-brother Jesus share this story. Luke 18 verse 9. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one man a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, he said, I'm sure loud enough for everyone to hear. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, 
was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You want a pure heart? It starts with the beating of the breast. And the recognition, sorrowfully, mournfully, of who you are without the grace of God. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And our society exalts the self. That's what social media is all about, is the exaltation of the self. I had this thought today, and everybody needs to hear it. Or here's a picture of me and what I'm doing right now. Hey, look at me. The Pharisee was Instagramming himself to God. The tax collector was too ashamed even to look up. Let me ask you, do you think the tax collector felt his repentance rather than just spoke it? He couldn't even look up. And his prayer... One sentence, one of the best prayers in all the Bible, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Both men were prayerful. Both were among God's people, but they couldn't be further apart spiritually, and the Pharisee, he went home self-satisfied, while the tax collector, he went home justified. Right before God. Why? Because God places the highest premium on humility. And I can't prove this, but I suspect that that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector actually happened. I like to think so. I could be wrong, but I imagine that Jesus probably saw this take place in the temple courts and recognized it, and it became part of His parabolic teaching after that. And if that's the case, and these were real men who were really acting on these prayers and speaking these aloud, and Jesus overheard this tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, then we will see him in heaven. And he who humbled himself will in fact be honored. Highly honored among God's people. Again, this was a popular motto in the early church, and perhaps we ought to bring it back. Rather than arrogantly embracing friendship with the world, instead of claiming our right to dispute Scripture and offend our God, maybe if we mourned and humbled ourselves a little bit more often. Now, I don't want to put this on you, but I will take this on myself. I think the reason I don't fully understand misery, mourning, and weeping and gloom is yet is because I have not yet fully comprehended how far I've fallen. How deeply offensive and ugly my sin really is in light of a perfect God. And more than that, I don't know that I have fully grasped this profound truth that as Yaakov says in verse 6, He gives a greater grace. Greater than anything else. Certainly greater than your sin and mine. And so it launches me right back to verse 8. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That is a remarkable spiritual truth. You know what that means? It means the moment you even have an intention of repenting and turning to the Lord, He's already moving to you. He's already coming. And the truth is, 
Sherlock Holmes got it patently wrong? What is left in our hands at the end? A shadow or at worst? More than a shadow? Misery? No. No, Yaakov would say, hey, for now, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. We would say, repent in real repentance today because guess what? Then, Revelation 22.4 tells us, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. What He is saying to us today, what the Spirit would say to us this morning, is we can no longer allow ourselves, we can no longer afford to be a people who are contentious within. We need each other too much. Psalm 30, and I'll end with this, says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up, and you have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you His godly ones. Give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. And weeping may last for the night. But a shout of joy comes in the morning. Holy Father, I look forward, so forward to that shout of joy to hearing it and speaking it, to being caught up in it, in that moment unparalleled when we will stand before Jesus, when we will meet You in the clouds, surrounded by all of those who have trusted in You and taken You at Your Word, those who are saved by Your blood, who are home to live with You forever. Oh, that shout of joy. I live for that. And to hear you say, well done. Father, this morning, it truly is a teaching for our fellowship and directed at us internally. Though we know we are to love everyone and to embrace those who don't know Jesus in the hope that they might come to know Him and be saved. But we are also called to be a family and to love each other. And to move beyond the infighting and backbiting that we see all the way back to the first century and just continues today. Father, we mourn over these things. We mourn over complaining and contentions and fighting, disputes. We mourn, Father, over exits from our body. And we ask in this state of repentant misery that Your Spirit would cleanse our hearts and direct us to to reconciliation and restoration. Holy Spirit, we're asking for a divine work. We're even saying, would You clean our hands as well as purify our hearts? Help us to rely on each other a little bit more. To love each other much more as we see that day approaching. Father, I pray this for the whole church. Not just the Bridge Fellowship. But the church worldwide that we would assemble around Jesus Christ 
that we will draw near to God so you could draw near to us. And in so doing, Lord, we'll love you with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our strength. And we will love our neighbors as ourselves. In Jesus' name.